In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to chat with a lady who is a leading road safety advocate as CEO of the Roadcraft Defensive Driving Program. Charlene Macon has overcome being profoundly hearing impaired to take the organisation from financial disaster to major government contractor. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Charlene Macon, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You're an athlete from years gone by. <laughs> like most of us, you're, you're suffering a, a few injuries and that sort of thing. How are you dealing with getting older? Uh, firstly, I want to correct you there. I was never what you'd call an athlete. I played netball, played basketball, and I did a lot of water skiing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so getting old, it's it's starting to catch up with me, the injuries that I had with netball and basketball. But I guess we just need to be really thankful for um, technology and what our surgeons can do. So, yeah, knee replacement ended this month, and I'm hoping that I'll be a new woman. You were talking about the knee replacement now, the, the technology that they're dealing with these days, it seems to be getting better. What is actually is happening, what you've described to me? So the uh, I can't have MRIs because I've got um, bilateral cochlear implants, so um, an MRI could possibly kill me. So they did a CT scan, and uh, from that, uh, that CT scan gets uploaded to Belgium where they make the part especially for me and my problem and then that's the picture my surgeon gets he gets part he knows where to cut he said that's a piece of cake it's easy so let's hope that's true does it worry you to those sorts of things you've obviously had with with the cochlear implants you've had a little bit of uh, surgical trauma does the getting the other parts of the body does that worry you or no everything's been good for me so i'm just hoping for the positives now and my husband's had two knee replacements been the best thing he ever did so I'm hoping for you know similar results and the the surgery for the cochlear implant um, has been absolutely life-changing. Let's talk about growing up not being able to hear when did you first know that you couldn't hear or know that things were different for you? Okay so um, the bad gene that runs in my mother's family uh, was diagnosed in me when I was about six Um, But I could hear perfectly well, as far as I was concerned anyway. Obviously, I was missing some high tones because that's how they picked it up. And, uh, you know, back then, those days, that was the nurse who came around to the school. That's how they tested all these things. Um, And so I think I started to first notice it. I used to say year 12, which was 16. But really, when I look back, it was about year 10, um, 14. And there would be like a group of us girls in the in the um, playground um, all having a chat and everyone would be laughing and I'd be thinking I don't actually know what they're laughing about so I was starting to miss things and in year 12 um, certainly uh, there was one particular teacher I couldn't hear Um, so it was my classmates that got me through that chemistry class and made me pass oh helped me pass Um, so then you know as as you know an older teenager uh, early 20s and certainly late 20s, um, 
that's when it became really, really difficult because I am a very social person. And um, it was really isolating. So I could hear, but I couldn't understand as I just lost more and more and more of the high tones, which are the consonants. So I could hear all the vowels. I could hear the door banging. I could hear the cars going by or all the background noise, um, but I couldn't understand any speech. So it was really isolating and um, lip reading is incredibly draining uh, and it takes just so much effort. Do you do some of that? I still do, yes. I've lost some of the skill of it, I think. I was a better lip reader before the cochlear implants, but I absolutely um, revert to lip reading quite often. Yeah, so um, I just was thinking about then, well, that's it, I'm going to be deaf. I'm going to be like my mother and aunties and uncles and cousins and, um, you know, older siblings. That's it, I'm just going to be deaf. And I was really struggling with that for a while. Um, and I certainly lost all my confidence with um, my work. And uh, so the cochlear implants have absolutely changed my life. It's an amazing invention. So it was something that sort of slowly crept up on you. Yep. And you said it affected your confidence. Was it just a social thing or was it right across the board? Everything. So um, social for sure. I come from a small country town in South Australia and everyone knew my problem. So it didn't, I guess, affect my confidence so much there. It affected my ability to have fun because, you know, go to a restaurant everyone's laughing and chatting and basically I'd just be kind of sitting there and if the person next to me wasn't having a conversation with me I've, I've missed everything so it was that it, it didn't affect my confidence so much in that until I moved to Gympie when nobody knew me then it certainly affected my confidence and it absolutely affected my confidence with my work so in this what were you doing at this stage um so when I um, moved from Bordertown in South Australia, where I was working for a transport company, pretty much doing everything in admin and um, you know helping to improve that business and professionalise it. So everyone knew my limitations, but they also knew what I could do. So um, it was easy for me because I said, no, nah, I can't do that, but okay, well, you do this. So moving to Gympie then... I just lost all my confidence with working um, and I thought, you know, nobody knows my value and trying to put that in a resume it was a bit hard. But anyway, I didn't want to work when we first moved here because I just wanted to be uh, settling my children in. And so, um, yeah, but then I eventually thought oh, I could just do some accounting work. I don't need to hear. So um, I did that and then I, um, I just did like payroll and creditors. Again, I didn't need to hear. Um, and so it was uh, at that job that I got the first cochlear implant and life became like it used to be again when I was younger and a bit more of a go-getter and yeah so which led to um, yeah my job at Rowcraft. We'll get onto that in a minute but um, I really want to explore the whole cochlear implant so talk us through the process when you actually started to find out that it might work for you. Yeah, it was really, really exciting. So my mother had one and um, I knew it had been fantastic for her. And then my older sister, who's 10 years older, she got hers. <coughs> and of course, she was 10 years deafer. Um, and when my mother got hers, you had to be completely deaf and, you know, things changed. So my sister contacted me, she was still in South Australia, and said, um, 
I think they might put a cochlear implant in you now. And um, So what percentage of hearing did you have you, so if, I, if someone rated, you know, like they rate blindness or... Yeah, so they don't tend to use percentages so much with hearing. It's more about um, what loss you've got in what range. So for us... And, and the problem that we have is um, we lose the high tones. So my high tones were nothing. I couldn't hear anything in the high tones. And we have to remember that hearing aids only amplify. So timesing anything by zero is still zero. That's why hearing aids probably aren't really what they're cracked up to be for my problem. Um, so hearing aids at that point weren't helping me and um, at a $12,000 gap after your private health it wasn't something I, I thought I'm not doing it so I had nothing to help me um, and so yes she said look a cochlear implant might they might do that now the first tests I did they said no you're not deaf enough so me being me I didn't accept that yeah how <laughs> so, did you feel um I wrote um I wrote a letter um explaining how life is very different to the hearing test they do in a soundproof room. And I understand why they have to, because it has to be uniform, but that's not life. And so I wrote about life and uh, the limitations that I had in my work and my day-to-day -day things and you know not being able to use the phone, um, all those sort of things. So um, anyway, so they actually come back and said, we will do a cochlear implant. So. It involved um, surgery, uh, overnight hospital stay, um, where the surgeon actually cuts just behind the ear and um, do a concave in the skull. And they put the implant, which is basically up here, and then uh, 22 electrodes wind through the cochlea. And they're like the nerves that send the message to the brain. So at that stage, you can't hear. So they need to let the wound heal, swelling go down. And um, so three weeks after that, well, it was back then, um, we have what we call switch on, which is different to turned on. That's a different thing. So this is switch on, okay. And so we go back to Brisbane and um, that's when we get this, what they call the processor. So, um, and that is the point where you can hear, but you can't hear properly, like I'm hearing now. So it's a process very much a process so um, because I couldn't hear high tones for so long my brain had forgotten how to accept those sounds oh wow yeah so the first when I was first switched on I described it as um, hundreds of thousands of birds chirping and squawking and squeaking all at once so it was just like my brain was going oh high tone high tone high tone and didn't know how to filter that. So an overload. Yeah, but it wasn't annoying. It was it was unbelievable that it wasn't annoying. So um, anyway, so what happened then is maybe, and, and then I had to go to Brisbane for one day a week for six weeks where they keep fine-tuning it, which they call mapping. And so, and, and in the meantime, my brain is getting more accepting of it. So um, yeah, that's the process. So in about maybe maybe three days the chirping the birds chirping which was constant turned into um birds only chirping in time with speech and then what happened after maybe a couple of weeks is 
that chirping turned into syllables. So then I was actually hearing syllables of people speak. So, um, How did that feel? Oh, it was amazing. So things like um, my kids still lived at home then and so I would I walked into the kitchen and I'm sort of going, I'm a bit, I'm looking around and I said, is that the microwave beeping? I said, yes, mum, that's the microwave beeping. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> well, I haven't heard the microwave beep for, you know, 20 years. And then, um, yes, things like um, I walked um, I walked down to the receptionist, into the reception at work and I just stopped dead. And there was all these people in reception and I just stopped dead and I sort of like a complete idiot. And I turned to the receptionist and said, is that the alarms going off? She said, yes. And I remember the last time the alarms went off at work, a colleague was coming to me like, the alarms are going off. And I said, well, I, don't, I can't hear the alarms. Mm. So I heard the alarms again for the first time and things like crickets chirping and, yeah, and you have to almost um, be trained as to what that is again. So I'd say to the kids, oh, what's that noise? Well, that's a bird chirping. Oh, okay. And then wow. somewhere else I'd say, oh, I don't, what's that noise? And they said, well, that's a baby crying. Oh, okay. And, yeah, so a baby crying in another room. Yeah, so you'd have to kind of like retrain. Okay, right, now I sort of know how that sounds through a cochlear implant. Um, yeah, so, so different now I can... Because you've, you've, because you've actually had, had hearing and so you understood yep. the, what things sounded like, how would you compare normal hearing to say what the cochlear implant can provide? So once uh, I was completely used to the implant and my brain had done all the training that it needs to do and, and it's very much, there's a lot of psychology in it, like you need to be prepared to accept the changes and go through that learning curve. Um, things like my husband's voice um, sound exactly the same as yeah when I could hear his voice before so and music music was one thing um with only one side done everyone had said to me that um music should be fine and it was and then um so I got the, I got the first side done 11 years ago and then five years ago I got the second side done because I, I just said I can't hear anymore and the audiologist explained that that's because there's nothing left in this ear. She said even though it only had low tones before it was helping this side to work. So, um, yeah, she said, now you need the second side done. I said, like, do it, just do it. So we did that. Um, she did warn me. She said many people with bilateral then don't enjoy music anymore. So I love music. It sounds exactly the same, but only music um, played like in the car or on speakers or something live music I actually struggled to work out what the song is and I'll say to my husband do I know this song he says yeah yeah it's and so that, okay right it's good then I can get it but sometimes I just can't recognize um, yeah a song from like you know when I was a teenager it's being played but I can't recognize it what do you put that down to that you can't really decipher that live sound I can't pinpoint what it is um, and the audiologist would probably have an answer to that but what I do know is a lot of cochlear implantees will have a lot of different um, experiences and individual experiences will be different so someone else 
will tell you, oh no, live music's fine for me. I don't like the other music. So it's it's a bit strange that, yeah, it just depends on your situation, I think. What were your feelings when you started to lose the ability to listen to music if it was pretty big in your life? Oh. How did you feel? Oh, it was awful, just awful. And I used to, I used to think how am I going to be able to live my life without music? And it was really depressing. So music was huge to me. And, um, you know, I liked to dance. So my you know, young days back in Bordertown, South Australia, we had, um, we had the pub called the Woolshed Inn. They had amazing bands and always fantastic entertainment. And that was um, my husband and I, that was our young days, dancing and drinking at the Woolly all night. And it was just the best place to be. Um, loved it. Yeah. So I just thought I can't, I can't even imagine my life without music and especially driving long trips. So driving for work or driving to Brisbane or something. And, you know, I had to do that in the end without music. It's incredibly boring. I just, yeah. So it was hard. Yeah. What but, about driving? Did it affect your driving, your ability to, when you're, you're losing your hearing and you can't hear other cars? Uh, is there a safety factor there? I, I don't believe so for me because I was just really aware that um, your vision had to be better and really that's every driver. So that's when we get to the road cross stuff, we can talk about that. <laughs> Most drivers don't use their vision effectively. So I was probably doing that even before I learned to do that at Rowcraft because I had to. So things like um, scanning in the mirror um, I was just doing that all the time because I, I can't hear a, a like an ambulance siren. So I knew I had to be very visually aware. So I probably had um, better vision than most, which probably in some ways made me a safer driver because most people just are really complacent, blase in the car and they shouldn't be. You were talking about you had to become a better visual driver, but did other senses as your hearing started to decline step up? I think my sense of smell certainly has. I can't stand to be within 40 foot of a smoker. I just can't do it. So my <laughs> other people say, oh, it's just smoking. I think like, it's just it's killing me. Like, yeah. So I, I have a really strong sense of smell. Um, I notice, I don't know, like other people, say if you're in the supermarket or something and I walk past someone who hasn't had a shower for a few days, I'm like, oh, physically. <laughs> and I notice other people don't do that. So, yeah, I think my sense of smell, but not that I don't, it doesn't really helpful, I don't think. You know, so, I mean, a blind person, when they get better um, hearing, it helps them. So, yeah, sense of smell hasn't really helped me. It's just annoying, I think. <laughs> That's just like, yeah, people with BO and that, I can't cope. Smoking, I can't cope. When you were starting to lose the hearing, you knew it's because it's a family thing. What was the main thing that you were upset about, the fact that you might not be able to hear again? It was definitely social and music, and that was my whole young life, being really, really social and, um, you know, having a great night out, dancing all night to music. That was the biggest thing for me, but probably when it happened, it was also my work. So I knew what I was capable of in my work, but I lost all confidence. I just thought I can't, yeah, I can't do those sort of PR type jobs that I loved um, 
yeah, I'm going to have to do the boring stuff like accounting. It is a good thing to grow up in a country town when people do know you've got this thing that you're dealing with and it's like the old Crocodile Dundee. You tell Wal, Wal tells everyone, <laughs> then there's no problem. Yes. How good was it growing up in a country town? So it was absolutely fantastic. Um, so I grew up in a place, It's the area is called the Tadiara, which is Aboriginal for the good country and... Um, also mean the good people. So the people of the Tadiara are some of the best people you'll find on this earth and we miss them incredibly. Um, so the great thing there was um, just these true friendships that are lifelong and, um, you know, you don't have to live in each other's pocket or ring each other every second day, but when we catch up again, we pick up where we left off. So that's the greatest thing about a country town is that sense of community. Um, and my kids now live in the city and they said they hate that anonymity. They, they miss um, a sense of community that you don't get in the city. Um, and the other great thing about a country town is when something goes wrong, the whole community just band together and get behind whoever needs support, which I guess you don't get so much in the city either. So but there was one thing sadly lacking in the country and that was... Um, anybody to teach us to sign so we had a lot of deaf people in my family and none of us sign and that's one of the um, big misconceptions um, that people have about deaf people they just assume they sign and many of us don't and in the country I guess in the city if you sign you're deaf and you sign there are deaf communities and they tend to stick together and they they do things together and they communicate well because they all sign so in the country even if my family had have learnt to sign, we could have just communicated with each other. There's no one else. So in the country, probably it's better that you learn to lip read because then you can communicate with everybody, which is quite different to deaf people in the city. Talk about learning to lip read. Is it something that was self-taught? Yeah, so um, one of the visits to the audiologist, because you know, there's many in our life, um, she said, you know, you're really going to have to learn to lip read. And I said, oh, how, how do I do that? She said, you're already doing it. And I said, no, I'm not. And so she had a, a blank A4 piece of paper and she put the piece of paper in front of her face and she kept talking and I was like, put the paper down. <laughs> and she said, you are already lip reading. You just don't know you are. So it is really honestly a self-taught thing. Which and as you gradually lose your hearing, you just rely on it more and more. But you can probably really only read um, thirty percent of speech on the lips. So the rest is like mannerisms. Yes. So you so if, so if someone's got dark glasses on, you always ask them to take their glasses off when they don't understand. How is that helping you? So because there's so much you read in someone's eyes, and um and and body language and mannerisms because you're always second guessing so if you think maybe that person just said my mum died and you're looking at their body language you think I know that's not what you said <laughs> unless you really hate your mum um, you know so that you're getting clues from everywhere and I've likened it to um, doing a crossword puzzle constantly but at this rate of knots so you've got a few clues you've got a few um, uh few vowels in the middle you've got a bit of context about what they might be talking about but you're trying to put all the other letters in there but at this rate of knots 
So that's the best way to describe lip reading, and it's that draining. Which is why the intense concentration... Oh, it's just... It is really, really draining. So you're doing everything else that everyone else does as well with their thinking and their working and their plus your lip reading. Um, so, yeah, so it used to be some strategies that I used to use, maybe, say, if you're in a social environment, just go to the ladies, sit on the loo, lock the door, take your hearing aids out and just <laughs> sit there and breathe. <laughs> you, you needed to do those sort of things just to to arm you with what you needed for now go out and do it again yeah but because my friends were so amazing and my family only understanding of course you could just say no stop I've had enough I can't do this anymore that's okay you know and stop talking to me I can't do this anymore yeah um so that's what I knew I was just going to be missing that so much how are your kids with you as you said the kids sort of says oh you can hear the microwave and must have been just as big for them as it was for you. Yeah, so um, one thing about, uh, and this is me as well, being brought up by um, a deaf parent or a parent who's going deaf, um, it makes kids really resilient. It makes them uh, very responsible. Uh, it makes them think of other people and um, they can do things very young that other kids don't do. So I remember doing this for my mother um like she'd say you have to make this phone call for me um because dad was self-employed so he'd be at work and she needed to do something for his business you have to make this phone call for me on my behalf so i'd be like ring this person explain who you are explain why i can't ring and we need to sort this out with i don't know the registration of the truck or something like that so very young we were doing those sorts of things for mum and you'd be like on the phone go okay just wait hang on and then i would say it so mum could lip read okay right now ask them this so then that process was repeated with my kids so very very young like from four um, I can remember my kids answering the phone, you know, hello, this is Tyler speaking. Um, no, you can't speak to mum. My mum is hearing impaired, which I was then. I wasn't actually deaf, I was hearing impaired. She can't use the phone, but I can tell her what you need. So at very, very young, they were doing those sorts of things. So it's actually a good thing in some ways. And um, I remember a younger daughter, she did a speaking competition and... Um, the adjudicator, he said to her afterwards, I cannot pinpoint it. What is it about you? Why do you speak so well? And he just said, I can't. I'm trying to work it out. What is it? I'm trying to guess. He said, no, I can't guess. And she said, oh, my mum is hearing impaired. He said, oh, that makes lots of sense. So um, my children definitely uh, always, as little, little kids, they would stop what they were doing keep the head still, look at the person they were talking to. There was no running around sort of speaking down to their boots. Um, they very much, very, really engaged with um, people, even as really young kids. But the greatest thing is um, my two daughters didn't inherit the gene. So they, they've got perfect hearing. When did you know about that? Uh, we get, kept getting them tested all the time. So um, quite young. Uh, and I thought, well, technology way back then they worked at that when I was six so um yeah quite young we were getting um pretty favorable results and thinking oh maybe it's maybe maybe and then um yeah so with the older one 
we were pretty certain, you know, by a certain age she's she's good. And then the, the younger one got good tests as well. And then when she was about 13, I really panicked and I thought, oh, my God, she's got it. I, there's something wrong with those other tests because she um, – her father at the time was he was doing Jim's mowing. He was a Jim's mowing man, and he had said to me, "School holidays that I need the kids to come and help me with this job, so you'll have to drop them off." I said, "That's fine." So he rang, and they were on the phone, of course, not me. And the younger daughter, she was saying, "Oh, he, you have to take me to Oful Street." And I said, "That's not the street. There's no street called Oful. It sounds like awful. No one calls street that." No, no, I ask him again. No, mum, he's definitely saying awful. I said, that can't be right. Said, oh, hang on, mum, it's awful, definitely. So three times she heard awful. So I said, that cannot be the right street. So my older daughter got on the phone and she said, no, it's Opal Street. Now P and F are high tones. So I freaked, I panicked and I thought, oh my God, I don't know why all those other tests were fine, but I think she's got it. And I was, I was distraught. Um, cause I, I don't can imagine. Want- I don't want this in my kids. Anyway, so I took her back for another test and I told the audiologist all about my history and, um, you know, and this is probably the first test we had in Gympie, so I told her about that and, um, yeah, why I was concerned. So she came out of the room after the testing, like pumping the air. This audiologist was so happy and she said, she's fine, she's absolutely fine. I said, well, why can't you hear that? And she said, it can take 20 years for a normal person's hearing to develop properly. She said, that's very normal for a 13-year-old. So maybe sometimes when we're saying that teenagers aren't listening, maybe that's normal and then hearing development is not great. I don't know, but she's fine, yeah. Did you at any time consider not having children because you might pass it on? We... um. We didn't consider not having them, but we certainly looked into it. So we went to a geneticist, my husband and I, when we were sort of thinking about starting a family. And basically he said it's a 50-50 chance. So I got my my mother's bad gene comes from her mother. So she's got one good gene from her father and a bad one from her mother. My father had two good genes in hearing. So when I was conceived, I get one of dad's, which is good and one of mums. So that can be her mums or her dad's. So I happened to get her mums, which is the bad one, which is the 50-50 chance. And so, um, yeah, that's how he explained it to us. So he said, if you don't want deaf kids, don't have them. It's that simple. <laughs> so when we looked at what deaf means to us is um, we have our hearing during all our learning years. It did become difficult near 12 for sure. And then I didn't go to uni, so I, you know, I would have struggled at uni, I think, but um, I didn't go to uni. So year 12, I was definitely struggling to learn, um, but had lots of support and, you know, did well in my year 12 exams and stuff. So we just thought, look, well, okay, well, it's, it's been fine for me. And um, we didn't actually even consider then what could technology do. Um, yeah, we didn't even think about that. But um, we decided, yes, we'll have kids and... Um, it just so happens that, well, my husband pumps his chest out and thinks he's a, he said he just needed a decent bull in the family. And I said, they actually got nothing to do with that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so he's got, my, our kids have got a gene from him. He's got two good ones. 
they happen to both get my father's gene, not my mother's. So, yeah, so it's just luck of the draw. But my sister's got four kids. I've got two. So out of the six kids, three have got it. So it's it's a 50-50 chance. Genetic roulette. Yeah, but what's great now is my kids' kids won't have it. So it won't throw back. It's It's out of... Our line, basically. How far back does it go? You said your mother have it. Did did your grandmother have it? Yes, and um, before that, I don't really know. But she, apparently, my grandmother was a bit different. Um, so she was like totally deaf by nine. So I would I would guess that my mother might have been totally deaf. Like the whole time my husband's known her, she's been deaf. So she might have been totally deaf by forty. And so I was totally deaf by about 50. So it sort of seems to be getting a bit better somehow. I don't know. Um, yeah. And my cousin, he's um, he's 63 and he's needed a cochlear implant forever and just kept saying, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. Well, he's just had it. So I don't know whether he's perhaps not as bad as me for some reason. I'm not sure. So, um, yeah. So what? everyone's a bit different. What's it like going on the table when you're being wheeled in? You know that this is technology that you're not real sure of. How did you feel? To be honest, I I purposely didn't do the research because I'm a I'm a real um, I'm into natural therapies a lot. Um, we have a long history of um, natural therapies and, and trying to go drug free, serving us a lot lot better than just go to the doctor, get script and, and put a band-aid over the problems and stop the symptoms rather than um, treat the cause of the problem. So, uh, and I'm very aware of things that cause cancer um, and we try and sort of steer clear of those if we can. So having stuff stuck in your head, it, it did concern me a bit and I purposely didn't do the research. I thought, I'm not going there. So... I don't know, It's my mother's had hers for a long time and she's fine. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty certain now um, that it's it's not harmful at all, yeah. When you're being wheeled in, though, when you're obviously with a little bit alternate sort of views, were you nervous? Were you having second thoughts? No, when I, when I look at, um, when I say we're into alternative things, we're into what is best for the situation at the time so obviously um, to me if you've got some sort of chronic fatigue type problem my experience is doctors and drug companies don't really know what the answer is a naturopath will get to the cause of the problem and can fix you Um, if you've um, fallen off your horse and broken your leg get to the hospital and go to the doctor so um, we need everybody and we need everybody to be playing their part What's missing in this country, which is an absolute shame, is some of them refuse to work together. So if they all work together, the health system in this country could be amazing. And if we stopped just going to the drug companies as our first option, so for us in our family, that's our last option. Certainly we do it if we have to, but I'll be taking painkillers when I have this knee hop. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just try and do the best um, with the situation at the time. And the cochlear implants were the best thing for me and still are. So you went for the second one after the first. 
how did that all figure and what happened then? Yeah, so I just I, I just went back to my audiologist and, and I need to give a plug to the good people at the Mater Hospital Cochrane Implant Clinic. They are beyond amazing. They just care so much. They, yeah, you're much more than just a patient to them. They are absolutely fabulous, all of them. Um, so, yeah, I just went back to her and I said, it's not working anymore. I can't hear. So, yeah. And then she she said, I I think I know why. Let me do some tests, which is, yeah, so there's nothing left in the right at all. You're completely deaf, Um, which was, you know, when I was 48. So when I say about 50, um, yeah, so it was was just like booking. So I went back to my surgeon, who's also amazing, and um, just booking, just do it. But I don't know whether... um, I don't know who's going to be hearing this and who might be considering a cochlear implant, but I do need to um, to say that it wasn't all smooth sailing for me. So um, with the first side, I got an infection, which is incredibly rare. Um, certainly wasn't the surgeon or the hospital's fault or anything, but to fix it, it was tough. It was really hard. So... Um, I didn't realise at the time, but I certainly am very knowledgeable now. Um, Antibiotics only fix a very basic staph infection on human tissue. And if it's on the foreign body, it won't fix it. So, yeah, I got a staph infection on the foreign body. um, And I have a theory now, which um, my surgeon and the infectious diseases specialist that he referred me to, agree with in that I did have a flaky scalp and it's caused from I can only use certain hair colors so I I'd had a reaction to these hair colors so when you feel like all the forms you know do you have a rash it was like no because I didn't and I didn't think about the flaky scalp and there wasn't a question about that so um my theory is that um a little bit of my own flaky skin got in there and when he was putting it in wow yeah so the infectious diseases guy, who was, again, amazing, um, explained to me that this staff that you've got, um, if, you, um, if you had a whole group of people in a room and you, you um, tested them all, I can't remember, I think it was like one in three or something would have it. And it's no drama until, you know, you cut your finger or something gets in there, it gets an infection, have antibiotics, you're better. He said if I had uh, people, 20 people in a room all with some sort of dermatitis or eczema, one in one would have this on their skin. I went, oh, so would a flaky scalp be considered? He said that exactly, yes. So I said, well, I think that's what caused it. So basically, instead of having one operation and three weeks later having switch on, I had five operations and six months to switch on and a second implant. And I can tell you it's still worth it. Really? Yes, absolutely. So I told my surgeon at the time, and you know, and how you can, you judge someone or you can judge some someone not sometimes by just the amazing thing they do, but what they do when something goes wrong. And this surgeon, I couldn't have asked for any better care. He was just amazing. And um, he treated this problem like it was his fault. He was mortified. I'm his only infection ever. Um and it wasn't his fault, but he just, he cared for me so well. 
and genuinely cared and genuinely wanted a good outcome for me and was very, um, he tried really hard to um, save the implant. In the end, he couldn't. And he said, I'm going to have to um, give you a new implant. What were your thoughts at that stage? I basically said to him, I think I'm a pretty positive person. And I said to him, I think some stage in my life, I'm going to look back at this time in my life as a minor inconvenience. (laughs) And that's honestly how I see it now. So, um, you know, I would be in hospital in Brisbane on a drip and then um, he would send me home with oral antibiotics. So he'd, he'd gone in again and he'd washed it all out. And he said, I can't, I can't see, you know, unless it's behind the implant and I don't want to dislodge the implant. So let's try this. And so they go home with oral antibiotics and um, and then it would start oozing again. So my husband would ring him and say, right, get out of pack a bag, I'll meet you at the hospital, bring her back to the hospital. So it was, it was that sort of thing. And then, okay, I'll operate again, I'll do this. And in the end, he said, I can't save the implant. And I said, okay, right, well, um, before I was deaf, and well, and now I'm deaf and I'm sick. So take the implant out because, you know, I might as well be deaf and well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and he said, and you know, we can, if we can't do this side again, we'll do the other side. So his concern was that the 22 electrodes going through the cochlea, which is kind of shaped like a snail shell, so they wind through. And he said, if I take those out, there's going to be scar tissue and then that we might not be able to re-implant. That was his main concern. So he talked to his friend who was the infectious diseases guy who, again, was just so wonderful in trying to find solutions for me. Um, and he said, leave them in. So he said, let's do this in stages. So, so you left the electrodes in the cochlea. Yes. So he said, if... If we find the infections on the bit that's sort of up on the head and and then you treat that, you take that out, you treat that. And then if she doesn't get better, we'll know the infections on the electrodes. Right. So, yeah, so it was a fantastic idea because he said as soon as he lifted up the, the bit that goes here, he could see the infection between my skull and that. So he said, right, that's... That's good news because now we'll get rid of that part and we'll um, treat the infection. And uh, so what he did is he snipped all the electrodes, took this part out, snipped the electrodes, left them in. And um, so then I got better with the antibiotics. They worked, they did their job. And um, so he made me have a heap of blood tests and do all sorts of things to make absolutely certain. And... Um, so then ready for re-implantation, he, uh, my whole family had to use a nose cream because he said staph bleed, um, breeds in the nose. So we were shoving cream up our nose. <laughs> um, we had to wash all of us with this special stuff in the shower. And these blood tests all had to be clear like once a week for how many weeks. And then that is like, <laughs> oh no, we're going to do this again. And um, so he, and I said to him, will my private health pay for another implant? And he said, they have to. So like, okay, righto. So, um, so into surgery again. So this was now the fifth lot of surgery on the left side. And he said, I can't keep opening that same cut. And I said, it'd be like a, 
like a facelift. <laughs> I guess it's pulling tighter and tighter. And I can't, I have to be aware of all these things in a big long-term plan for you. So five was, you know, like you're saying, that's kind of the limit. I think I can keep opening the same cut and, and closing it again. Um, yeah, so um, he he re-implanted and he said he took one electrode out and put the new one in. So no scar tissue. So yeah, I had this amazing wonderful help from these um this surgeon and this other guy from the you know medical profession that and in the whole time you know the martyr the martyr hospital cochlear implant clinic where i had to do the switch on they're just waiting (laughs) waiting 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 um for switch on which is normally three weeks so for me it was six months when you said you were not well how did it affect you at that stage yeah so i was just really tired and um just felt generally um, unwell and and where the uh, where the this part goes when it was still in there because I know now because there was pus and infection behind it it was like it was spongy so it should be hard it should feel hard and it was very spongy and a little bit just tender to touch but um, you know I worked and I I kept the oral antibiotics up and I worked and I um, yeah I I'd just be then be at work and um, you know just sort of touch and say oh oh off to the toilet wash my hands and I'd say to someone can you please ring my husband because yeah I'm it's weeping again I'm going to have to do something about this so yeah so it wasn't too bad um, as far as I didn't feel sort of sick all the time or anything like that. Your husband sounds pretty supportive. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, so now he's going deaf. <laughs> so, so he's got industrial deafness. Yeah. How important was it, the whole family and support, when you're going through this process of firstly losing your hearing and then getting the cochlear implant? Yeah, so the, the family support, I think, is just more important while you're losing your hearing because it can be so draining and so frustrating and so tiring that you can be a bit cranky to live with like you can get just frustrated so easily and say for example if say if you wanted to um ask Mary something and she's in another room you can just yell hey Mary what's and she would answer you okay no worries and you keep working that doesn't happen with a hearing impaired person so you have to actually physically get up, tap them on the shoulder, yep, get their attention, wait till they're looking at you. Okay, you know, ask the question and then I haven't got it. So put it in a different way so that I can lip read it, you know, because you just can't lip read everything. Okay, got that, yep, good, no, go back out. Oh, hang on, I forgot to ask this. So back into that room, whole thing again. So, um, and, you know, for my kids, so they're, you know, normally kids are running around, hey, mum, can I have this for lunch? Yeah, no worries. So for us it was, um, yeah, they have to actually come get my attention. I've got to stop what I'm doing because you can't just keep cutting the veggies or something. You have to stop. So you can't do two things at once, um, which then gets frustrating and then you are tired and you're cranky and you haven't got everything done because everything takes longer. So, yeah, so it's... You need incredible support from your family because they could easily just throw their hands in there and think, oh, God, this is all too hard. Um, so it's hard for everyone. It obviously went the right way for you because you had plenty of support, but 
could it break a relationship absolutely up? absolutely and my i remember my brother-in-law so my sister's husband saying to my husband after she had hers he said oh my god she's just like she's a different woman oh my god life is so much easier <laughs> yeah so and so then the the benefits of the cochlear implant also benefit everyone you talk about your private health what do they cost uh so uh i think it's back when i had mine probably more now but i don't know it might be less because technology gets cheaper so um it was twenty eight thousand twenty eight and a half thousand dollars each side so um for me the gap was about 1500 which is amazing how's the technology improving as you've said as they go on have you observed a, an improvement in the technology yeah so i haven't observed it so much yet but it's coming so um there's there are new processes out and now that mine are five years old i can get new ones on my private health so i have to wait for five years um so at the moment i have uh what we call a mini mic so i strap a mini mic here and when i go walking or something and to stream the music so i've got my phone on my arm to stream the music from the phone to here it's got to go through the mini mic um and then to uh, i can also use a mini mic like i could if there was someone to talk to over there and here, they could be holding the mini mic and um, that sort of thing. So um, the new uh, processes um, with the, I think it's about the iPhone 8 after that, and I've got an 8, no mini mic. So for the, um, to get music from my phone, it's straight to the um, processor. And that's because Apple and Cochlear did a lot of work together. And the other thing that's going to happen with the new processes is um, at the moment, before I can answer the phone, I've got to change the setting. Um, so just that's it, just Bluetooth, picks it up. I don't do anything. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. But they're just having trouble getting them at the moment, same as everything with COVID. So I'm on the list to get these new processes, but... I'm waiting for them to ring me to say they've got them. Sound-wise, what will be the improvement for you, though, when you do get the new processes? Do you expect a big improvement? I expect, from what they've said, um, better hearing in a noisy environment. So in a quiet environment like we've got here now, um, you know, I often don't have to lip-read. I can hear really well. And um, I could probably get away without even telling anyone that I have any hearing impairment at all and they wouldn't even notice but as soon as it's anything noisy it's harder and um the phone is hard too so if someone's on the bluetooth or something in their car it's really hard for me to hear that is apparently where i'll experience the improvement what's the social stigma with deafness these days do you experience much of that i don't because i have strategies i think people who don't have strategies would for sure because this is the problem with deafness um, and certainly for my deafness and the deafness that's in my family because we learn to speak while we can hear we don't have any speech impediment so for me what I learned by going to counseling sessions which changed my life not sort of counseling sessions more like um, it was like sessions on learning how to live with their hearing loss and they were invaluable so What she explained to me is you have the invisible disability. So um, the stigma would not be around the fact that she can't hear. No one cares that you can't hear. They want to help you. It's when they don't know you can't hear. So 
if she said if you don't tell people you can't hear they don't know and they think you're incredibly strange because they think why is she looking at my lips is have I got Vegemite on my lips from toast this morning or and then when you get people notice that that you say okay I'm looking at your eyes do people notice that they do they yeah and so that's why it's important to tell them why Mm. you're doing it and so and the other thing she said is you know you move in really close to people and you're looking at their lips more and you're moving closer and she said you know some people are going to think what is she doing does she want to kiss me you know so she said you look really strange and then she said um say for example uh sitting around a campfire you know water scan camping sitting around a campfire it's dark and everybody's laughing and you're sitting there and you're not laughing so people think you're snobby aloof no sense of humour, you know, like I introduced myself to her before, she's not speaking to me, she's not even part of this group, she doesn't even want to be here. And this um, lady said, you know, none of these things are true, but that's how people perceive you if they don't know you're deaf. So what changed my life is learning from this. So the first thing I do when I meet anyone is I tell them I'm hearing impaired and it changes everything. So then the other thing she explained was, so once people know they want to help you, you could assume they know how to help you because you've known all your life how to help hearing impaired people. They don't. So you need to ask them. And she explained to me about the importance of passive, assertive, aggressive. So people with hearing loss who are passive just laugh and pretend they've heard. Aggressive people will get angry at you because you haven't helped me to hear and forget that you don't know how to help them hear. So assertive is, okay, Mark, I will need to read your lips. So if you can please just make sure that microphone is not in front of your lips. If you can keep your hands down away from your face for me, that really helps me. And by the way, you're sitting in front of a window, which is putting a shadow across your face. So could we possibly swap? That's assertive. So all of these are life skills that I learned at this series of um, sessions I went to changed my life. Um, And so now I always say to anyone, it doesn't matter what you can't do in life, tell people you can't do that. On your resume, tell them you can't do that. It doesn't mean you're not good at the job. It's just everyone's aware and now they can help you. Is it hard to accept help? Not uh, Not as far as my hearing loss goes because I can't cope without it. I can't do without people's help. So I need to communicate, I need that help. I need to communicate how I need that help. And um, and then I need to remind people because it doesn't matter how many times you tell some people, please don't put your hands in front of your mouth, they will. Um, and I can't cope without that help. It's really hard for me to ask for help in all other aspects of my life. So, yeah, I I find that difficult. The second cochlear implant that you did have, so how did it go? You had a lot of problems with the first one that ended up going okay. How did the second one go? Yeah, so the second one, my surgeon was like, oh, God, not you again. Oh, God, I was like... And he keeps saying to me that this one grey hair that he has, that's you, that's yours. I've got a name for that. It's called Charlene. (laughs) Um, And um, so he said, right, for the second one. So we put a lot of things in place beforehand. So we had to 
again um do the nose cream and the special wash and um like no flaky scalp and um yeah so we just you know was a lot more careful but like I said to me he didn't do anything different when he did the surgery for this one it's just one of those things so yeah so I was really confident that it all will go well this time and it did so one surgery three weeks later switch on done yeah How's the hearing these days then? You've got two cochlear implants and hopefully very shortly better processes. But how's the hearing these days? Yeah, so I would, like I said, sometimes I don't even have to tell people. I do, but I, like they say to me afterwards, I would never have known. And I said, well, that's because I, I these hear so well. So, so I'm in lots of situations and lots of times during the day, I completely forget that I'm deaf. Um, it's only when I get into a group situation, a restaurant, a restaurant is hopeless. I'm very much reminded that I'm very hearing impaired in a restaurant situation and all restaurateurs need to, please, I'm begging you, all restaurateurs, are you listening? Can you put some acoustic ceilings or acoustic things in your restaurants? Because it's really hard for everyone, not just, you know, hearing impaired people to just relax and have a nice time because it's so noisy. Um, certainly on the phone, I, I feel deaf, but sometimes on the phone, if everything's perfect, I can have a half hour conversation on the phone and not miss a thing. So it just depends on the situation. So the hearing can be pretty close to perfect. And, and where hearing aids are only multi- uh, multiplying, so if you haven't got those high tones, timesing anything by zero is still zero so all it's doing is amplifying the low tones which are the background noise so they're a bit useless like that the cochlear implant gives you those tones back yeah so it's it's incredible it's amazing so professor um graham clark an australian is my superhero he wears a cape as far as i'm concerned (laughs) amazing amazing man done amazing work and his father was deaf so he said about trying to work out how can I help deaf people. Do you ever turn them off? Yeah, yeah. So um, to have a shower, um, so they come off. Uh, to sleep, they come off. So, which is a great thing because, you know, people <laughs> say, oh, did you hear that motorbike at four o'clock in the morning? I said, no, I didn't. I slept. So that's a good thing. Um, but, yeah, that means I need, um, you know, a vibrating alarm clock. We need um, so smoke alarms in our house. Um, we have other ones for me that vibrate that same vibrator under my pillow to wake me up. Um, but, yeah, it's actually a good thing that you can turn them off. Um, yeah, so obviously safety-wise, you know, if I'm in the shower or something, Trevor's fallen over and broken his leg and he's yelling at me, it's not going to work very well for us. But, um, you know, I'll get out eventually and put him back on. <laughs> um, yeah, so – and things like um, – Oh, so water skiing, like if I'm doing something really slow, I just have, there's a waterproof thing you can put on it and so I wear them. Um, Or if, say, if I'm, you know, back when I was fitter, um, slalom skiing (laughs) or barefooting, um, I don't bother to wear them then. I just take them out and do that deaf because, you know, you fall quite hard and they're going to, like they're hooked to your togs, but you're trying to get them back on with your gloves and all that, so it's just easier to do that deaf. So When you've had hearing impairment have there been any big faux pas moments when you say you haven't really understood what's been going on where you go oops 
Yeah, I think I think it's been heaps, but not, not <laughs> I can't remember any specifically. But there are times when, you know, the kids have laughed and no, <laughs> you've got that completely wrong. And so there's I'm sure there's been heaps, which is why it's important people know. Because they think you're some strange cat, honestly, <laughs> if you yeah, if they don't know. And it really is. Like, I went through a long, a long time in my life where I didn't have hearing aids because they just didn't help and they were so expensive. And I could speak. So there wasn't even a hearing aid there for people to give people a clue. Um, yeah, so it's pretty important that they know. So when you do those faux pas, they understand. With the cochlea, which is also the balance area of your brain or your head or the body, did it affect your balance playing with the cochlea or did you have balance problems? No. So some people with hearing impairment have um, some vertigo problems and they have tinnitus as well can be associated. So no vertigo for us or anyone else in my family. Um, Never been affected with that at all. The tinnitus was a slight for me, but it used to just, it, the ringing would get really intense, but at the point I was about to fall asleep, so it didn't actually matter because you knew sleep is coming and then it would stop. Um, but cochlear implants help tinnitus. I don't really have any knowledge on the vertigo, how it all goes with that. If you're already um, suffering from that, I'm not sure, but not an issue for us. From here, it's basically an ongoing management thing that you have than just keeping abreast of what's going on? Yeah, so from here, um, it should be about once every 12 months, but COVID sort of upset that a bit, um, is I go back and I have another, what they call mapping. So um, it just, it just, just um, doing some adjustments, some fine tuning to make sure it's working at optimal level for me and for what I need. Do you find that some people, like you said, tell people straight up and be a little bit assertive? Do people try and hide it? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't serve them well. Too many people try and hide it. So, like, for um, for example, when I moved to Gympie and then I, I settled my kids into a new town, new state, and then I wanted to – I I got bored, so I wanted to work again – and I, I put my resume around to, like I said, accountants because I thought, well, I can do accounting work, Dev. On my cover letter, it opened with, I am severely hearing impaired. Um, it is the best thing you can do. Don't try and hide it. It's just, it doesn't serve you well. doesn't serve anyone else well. Just, and, and I say that with anyone I'm interviewing now for a job, tell me what you can't do. That's not a bad thing. It just gives me the knowledge I need. How do I support you and where do you best fit in the team? Because we don't all need the same strengths. It's a team works better if we have, we have different strengths but, uh, and different skills but the same mindset. You were talking about how you loved it at Bordertown. You moved to Gympie and you were settling in there. Why did you leave? <laughs> so there were lots of reasons why we left. Um, so basically, one of the first reasons was education for our girls who are really bright. So Bordertown High School for me was an amazing school and I felt I got a private education at public cost, but it's the only option in Bordertown. So Bordertown High School wasn't getting a great reputation, you know, as my girls were getting higher up in primary school and um, everyone was sort of telling me, oh, your girls will cope they're bright, they'll cope. And I, I got a bit sick of that word cope, to be honest. I thought if they, if they have the ability to excel, 
then maybe um, we should put them in an environment where they're um, encouraged to do that. So the other option for us was private boarding school in Adelaide, which many of our friends opted for. Um, we couldn't afford it. And it was $12,000 a term per child. Yikes. Yeah. So, um, so that wasn't an option for us. And it's not actually what we wanted either. We didn't want to send our girls away. So... Um, I got I got a bit like oh worried about education. Um, there was a time I remember the kids needed socks, and there was nowhere to buy socks in Bordertown. The supermarket didn't have any, so it's like I don't know where to buy socks, and that was frustrating me more and more and more. So you know we I take a day off work during the school holidays, take the kids to Mount Gambier, two hours away, and you you know go to the movies, go out for lunch go do a bit of shopping, so $400 later you've got socks instead of just going buying socks. <laughs> so that was starting to frustrate me. Um, and um, my husband's sister, actually, she lived in Rockhampton and she was killed in a car crash. So when we came up to Rocky here for her funeral, um, you know, they were saying that she lived here, she lived there, she lived somewhere else, she did this, she did that. And I got to thinking, oh, what are they going to say about me at my funeral? I've lived in Bordertown my whole life. Yeah, I'm a good wife, I'm a good uh, mother, I'm a good employee, but that's it. That's it for me. That's all I've ever done. So I got to this thinking, I just, I felt like we needed some adventure, maybe tying that adventure in with maybe good education. I don't know. So I actually, you know, you get these feelings and then they go away. Well, it didn't go away. It just got stronger. We need to move. So, um... We, I, I put this question to my husband. I said, hey, do you, what do you think about maybe moving away from Bordertown for a while? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm open to that. And said, where do you want to move to? And I said, I want to go to Adelaide. And he said, I'm not going to Adelaide. He said, if we move, we're moving to Queensland. So then I thought, oh, my God, what have I started? Why Queensland? Well, he has arthritis and um, the cold down there was really starting to get to him. So he wanted a warmer climate. He said, if we're moving, I'm not putting up with this anymore. We're going to a warmer climate. Um, yeah, and I thought that's too far away. That's too far away from family and friends. Anyway, so um, we came up here and we had a bit of a look around and we also had a bit of a, um, a list of criteria that the place had to have. And Gimpy ticked all the boxes. And so we decided that we would quietly put a... We had a beautiful home, architecturally designed home, in 11 acres. The kids rode their pushy to school, so it was really close to everything. It was fantastic. So I thought we'll just quietly tell the real estate agents about our house if someone is inquiring. And if the house sells, we're going. And if it doesn't sell, we're staying. So we basically left it in the lap of the gods. And... Um, Within a week, our house was sold. So, <laughs> so we, we treated it like an adventure. And 18 years later, we're still here. And the kids got a great education. Um, what I love about Gympie is we, there are really good options for education, both public and private. And I think there's a school that um, would suit most people. So, and and we, we, our girls went to St. Pat's here and had got an amazing education at $3,000 a year per child, not $12,000 a term. What other boxes did Gympie tick for you? Um, so obviously it needed to be close to Brisbane because I was thinking at some stage I'll need cochlear implants. So places like Rockhampton, Cairns, just too far away. Um, I'm like, 
cochlear implants might be available then or they weren't then it had to be a, a capital city um we wanted um that warmer climate um but we also wanted seasons so cans just hot all the time so i don't think i could cope real well with not never owning a jumper i thought i want some seasons i like you know that change and wearing different clothes that sort of thing um but we didn't want a long winter we, we wanted it mainly warm um we wanted somewhere to water ski and we do that just out of Tyro and we wanted to be close to the beach but not necessarily on it. Um, we certainly didn't want to live at the Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast. Um, Ken and Barbie's there and we think it's a nice place to visit <laughs> but you wouldn't want to live there. So we, we are very much country people. So we wanted, we wanted a town that was big enough to have those basic services but still have a country feel. Um, it had to have great rainfall because we have we love our tank water. I can't drink anything else. I have to have tank water. Um, what else was there? There were a few things. Uh, affordable real estate. So, yeah, and certainly the schools. I had to have a great choice of schools for our girls. So you started sending out resumes, telling people that you were hearing impaired. Where did you land from there? What happened? So basically I got uh, an interview at um, Cos Shoes, so I worked for him. Uh, he, he gave me the job and yeah. Cos Shoe, one of the local accountants. Yes, sorry, yes. So he, um, he gave me the job and then, um, yeah, from there I actually applied for a job um, at Skill Centred, which was um, uh, like it was um, payroll and creditors. And again, I thought, well, I don't need to hear for that. So did all that good and then I got the cochlear implant um so then oh long story short here but um (laughs) the the CEO of Skill Centred at the time was the treasurer at Roadcraft Roadcraft was not in a great place it was I think it was nearly broke and um anyway their executive director they called him at the time was leaving so the treasurer of the of Roadcraft, being CEO Skill Centred, um, orchestrated this without telling me. But he basically made me redundant, and said to the board of Roadcraft, "I know someone, and yes, she will be available." So, <laughs> so I got put there. I got basically put at Roadcraft with no knowledge of the fact that it was in like it was there was lots of bad things going on at Rowcraft at that time and what um, sort of bad things well a $62,000 loss so in the first first financial year I was there I was only there for three weeks so we recorded a $62,000 loss um I got a letter from the Office of Fair Trade asking how we weren't trading oh sorry from ASIC how we weren't trading insolvent and I said well we probably are but I'm new I've got a plan. This is my plan. Um, and they allowed us to keep trading. Um, there were all sorts of issues with not the executive director that left before me, but the one before that. All sorts of issues. Things like um, tapping into the computer system and controlling the system from home and holding the website to ransom. Like it was just ridiculous things going on there. Um, the whole place was daggy. Uh, we had no work. Um, yeah, it was lo- like looking at how the business is going to be in the future was hard. It was really, really challenging. So um, I thought, 
when I, when I did the Rowcraft course, it just immediately struck me that this the product is amazing, and um, unfortunately, it's really the optional extra, but it is amazing. And um, so when I did that driving course in my early forties it struck me as a grave injustice that I have never been taught this stuff before. I'd been relying on luck alone. And that, that's an injustice. So every driver needs the training that we do at Rowcraft. And so I just knew, like, we had to save it. Um, so when you actually got the job, you went and did the course just so you knew what you were dealing with. Yes. Yeah. I needed to know the product. And it, it just had to be saved. The, their product is amazing. So... Um, I sort of thought that maybe um, perhaps we could get a bit of the ambulance work, like the driver training for the Queensland Ambulance. So I put some feelers out to some people. Uh, so someone in Gympie who sent uh, an email to someone in Maroochydore, um, and I was sort of waiting to hear um, back from them. And in the meantime, um, I got a, about three weeks after those emails, I got a phone call from a man called Dennis Jess and uh, he was from Queensland Ambulance in um, Brisbane. He was the director of education. And um, so he talked to me about, um, yeah, whether maybe it, there's a possibility that Rowcraft could do this driver training. And I'm like thinking this is just too amazing to be true. And he explained to me that Mount Cotton Training Services were closing down and they needed to put it somewhere. So what I sort of realised was that hang on, he's not talking about a little piece of the pie, he's talking about the lot, like every paramedic in Queensland. And I remember when I worked for Mackenzie Intermodal in Bordertown, so Linton Mackenzie, I learnt from him. He always used to say to me that when you're asked to do something in business, you always say yes and you worry about how you're going to do it later. <laughs> so... So this Dennis just said to me after explaining all this and, you know, can you do this? He said, so the first question I have to ask you is, is, are you interested? And I said, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'll worry about how I'm going to do it later. <laughs> and um, so then he said to me, so you do realise why I'm ringing you in particular? And I said, yes, because I emailed this person. They emailed that person. I'm assuming they have talked to you. And he said, no, I haven't heard from either of those ladies. He said, no, I was telling my cousin about my problem and I need to get this driver training somewhere. And she said, oh, you have to talk to Charlene at Roadcraft. And I said, who's your cousin? And so his cousin is Kerry Eaton, who is the singing teacher of my girls. So, yeah, so that's how, that's how that, all that happened. Synchronicity. So, yes. So, um, so... Kerry Eaton is, uh, she's involved in lots of things in the community, she's done lots of great work and she's really supportive of um, young uh, up-and-coming singers and performers and whatever and um, she just does a lot of good work in the community. So sometimes she'll come to Rowcraft and ask us for some sponsorship or something and we just bow and say, how much do you need? <laughs> because, you know, we, um, we owe her a commission on probably about $8 million worth of work since then. Oh, nine million. Nine, within nine years, yeah. How excited were you when you've gone in, you've said, this is an amazing program, the Roadcraft program. How excited were you when you looked like getting the ambulance contract? I was dancing in the office. I went out, and, so from my office, went out to the main office and I was dancing. Um, 
I was just so happy that all the stars and moons and planets have aligned here and um, this is our opportunity to so not just not just save the Rowcraft courses that they do for the public um, and then obviously save more lives but this is our opportunity also to show someone as big as Queensland Ambulance Service what we can do little old Rowcraft and little old Gimpy um, so it wasn't just an amazing coup for Rowcraft it's been an amazing coup for the whole region because the injection into the into the uh, local economy from that one one government contract is invaluable it's just amazing yeah so then we had more employees we have more um suppliers you know we have to feed these people so they we have caterers local caterers do all that work we they have to stay somewhere so they all stay at the victory hotel um uh, they, all the ambulances get fueled in Gympie. We had to build a, a purpose-built um, fleet storage shed for the ambulances because we've got the whole whole of um, get Queensland ambulance um, fleet training um, training fleet in Gympie housed at our shed. So someone had to build that shed. That was all local contractors, local suppliers, and then we had money to renovate the whole place. So that's all local contractors, local suppliers, and we spent a lot of money in the community um as well as the ongoing stuff like the the accommodation and the and the um catering so it's been fantastic when you took on the contract of queensland ambulance what were their initial thoughts when they came in and saw what you were offering yeah well i was i was really concerned i was embarrassed (laughs) when we when we received, uh, you know, the head honchos from Queensland Ambulance at Rowcraft, I was embarrassed. And me being me, it's a bit like the same thing with the hearing, just be straight with people, you know. And I said, okay, this is what you get now, but here's my plan. So if we can make some profits from this, well, then I intend to renovate this, 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 and do this, this, and this. So Dennis Jess was one of the most amazing people on the face of the planet. Unfortunately, we lost him with cancer um but yeah wonderful man so very very supportive of what we you know had to offer at the time and um what our plans were um yeah so and then we just set about the whole team set about okay how do we do this we we got their curriculum in which um we sort of modified a little bit we asked could we make what we figured were improvements um and and they allowed us to do that so yeah we now have some amazing courses for Queensland Ambulance and uh, we've re-tendered a few times and we keep winning the tender and um, we continue to do our amazing work for the community and um, saving more lives and everyone's happy it's fabulous so the the whole ambulance contract is it the mainstay of roadcraft these days so it's basically (laughs) We have a different business model, being a not-for-profit. So it's 81% of our income, which is uh, has been very successful for us, but it's also, of course, very precarious because if we were to lose that one client... Um, so what we do with, um, is we use the profits from that contract to subsidise the other courses to help make them more affordable. So we don't make any money on the other 9%, which we get from high schools, primary schools general public and other corporate groups so smaller corporate groups like um you know anyone 
can send their staff to us. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite a precarious business model, but at the moment it continues to work really well for us. And every everyone at Rowcraft, the whole team, we know that um, we can never get complacent. We can't ever think that we've just got this contract in the bag. We we work really hard to give them an exemplary, seamless service across the ho- the whole experience. Um, so you know, admin staff, our um, our maintenance officer, you know, always make sure that everything's mowed and looking amazing and everything's clean. And so it's a, it's the little things that make a big difference. Yeah. So um, we just we just intend to keep going like this. We're trying to make ourselves indispensable to them. The the facility we have here. I don't think Gympie people realise what an amazing asset we have here, which is community owned in that driver training facility. So most most organisations wouldn't be able to tender for that contract because they don't have what we have. And that was because of um, Rotary, Apex, three councils back then and the community that this facility was put there in the first place. So we are forever grateful to that group of people 41 years ago and um and we're we just never take that for granted and we're always sort of thinking with thanks of what those people did 41 years ago for this region is the envy of other they want what we have have you looked at other government departments to try and expand your business model we would need longer than today to (laughs) so part of my work is 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 advocating to government at all levels on Rowcraft's relevance. So um, we've, we've won, we've got some small wins, but unfortunately we are still very much the optional extra. So, you know, most governments work, it's controlled by politicians. Politicians and the system we have in this country is that um, you only need to do a few good things for a couple of terms and then you've got your pension forever, so no one cares, really. I mean, that's that's very broad, of course. Some people do care, but that's broad. That's pretty much how politics works in this country. So instead of having a system where if you don't do a good job, that's it, you're not getting paid, which is in, in the private sector, um, or even a not-for-profit. So if I don't continue to go, do a good job as the CEO of Roadcraft, I can't expect my salary to be there because I'm going to get sacked and that's it, you're going to have no salary. It doesn't work like that with politicians. So that we need to have more incentive for them to do a great job and then continue to do a great job. So basically with road trauma, how it is now, people think, and this is a really sad fact, people assume that road trauma is a price we have to be prepared to pay for being a road user. We at Roadcraft don't believe that at all. We think effective education can mitigate all that. And you don't need to be involved in road trauma. You don't have to run that chance if you're educated properly. Um, and that's why I said before I was relying on luck alone. And that, that's a terrible injustice. That Do you pe- get laps behind the wheel? Not now, not after the Roadcraft course. You see, I did all the time. So, um, yeah, so we, my, I'm advocating to the government all the time that this sort of thing needs to be available everywhere. We can't do that on our own. We need some help. We need support from everyone. 
and um, and, and I say to them things like, you know, road trauma is everybody's problem, so it needs to be everyone needs to be part of the solution. So the solution for them is of some big, really expensive um, TV campaign imploring people to drive safe. So basically what that's, what that's um, highlighting to people is why they need to drive safe. So they'll have you know, someone coming home for Christmas and they're hugging their family and they got home safe. So this is why you need to drive safe. Our argument is we think everyone already knows why. We've all been um, affected by road trauma. So the missing bit that the government doesn't do is they don't teach people how. So here it is, what, you've got to drive safe, drive safe, drive safe. So I know, I didn't know how until I did the roadcraft course. So that's the bit we do at roadcraft, we teach how. So for a politician, if you're seen to be doing something about road trauma, tick the box, you've got the vote next time. That's the limit of their thinking. And that, it might not even be because they're a bad person. It's just because they're caught up in the system. The whole so party machine. We need to change the system. So Charlene alone is not going to change the system. <laughs> but um, part of my work is to change the government's thinking. So do you think I'm going to succeed? Probably not. But we that, that dent there, that's from beating a head against a brick wall, trying to make them see that this is truly what's required. Talk us through the roadcraft course. What's actually happening? Someone turns up, signs on the dotted line, says, yes, I want to learn. What are they learning? What they're learning is, um, so very different to a driving school. So a driving school teaches the monkey skills of driving and then how to pass the test, basically. Um, Do they have a place? Absolutely. So absolutely. So driving schools, um, unfortunately, are limited to what the government is telling them to teach. So I'm not I'm not saying driving schools are bad. I'm saying the system is bad. So everyone has their place. So the parents supervising the young novice drivers, the driving schools, absolutely necessary. The missing bit is roadcraft. So if we could combine the three, we would have a much safer um uh, novice drivers. So novice drivers are overrepresented in the road toll. So um, that that's what they need to keep them safe, those three together. And we, you know, there are many good driving schools who work really closely with us and they'll send their clients to Roadcraft, which is great. Um, so at Roadcraft, we teach drivers to be more aware, more attentive and safer. So we're not teaching them this one makes the car go, this one makes the car stop, that sort of thing. We're teaching them to use their vision much more effectively to keep them safe. Um, we're teaching them about time and space, which they're in control of. So stop blaming other drivers because you're in control of your time and space and how time and space keeps me safe. And the strategies we use to do that and understanding, of course, I'm not a driver educator. I don't have those qualifications. I manage the business. But this is what our amazing, amazing educators do. So they... Um, each course is some theory and then straight out in the cars and they do that practical on a purpose-built driver training facility on private property. Um, so we can do a lot more things on there than driving schools or anybody else um, in a safe environment. So pretty much um, 
know, the foundation skills, it's, it's theory and then practical and then morning tea, come back in, another theory, practical. And, and we go through the two-day course and in all of the, what we're trying to do in that two-day course is set the exercises up so that they choose themselves to want to adjust their attitude to risk acceptance. So if you've got an 18-year-old male, and all the research shows this, if you stand over them and go, you will drive safe, they'll go, yeah, right, no worries. <laughs> you know, so that doesn't work, which is that's why we don't do that. So we'll set them up in a series of exercises where there will be this light bulb moment and they'll sort of go, oh, shit. How gratifying is it when you oh, see that? It's, so when we see that, that's a little bit gratifying. When, and the educators will say, I saw the light bulb moment in that kid who came to us with a terrible attitude. I don't want to be here. You know, grandma's told me I have to come and she's bought me this gift certificate. It's a waste of time I don't want to be here. When they see that light bulb moment, that's really gratifying to them. And they drive away and they know they're a different driver. So I don't see that as much. What's gratifying to me, and this happens all the time, so Glenn, our operations manager, will come into my office and will say, the hairs on my arms are sticking up. I've just had one of those moments because a grandmother or someone has on, it's gone the phone again to him and she said something like, you know, I, I put all my grandkids through your course. I buy them all a gift certificate for their 17th birthday or whatever. So she said, my grandson is currently on the side of the road somewhere near the sunny coast. He's on the side of the road, shaken, and he's, you know, he's, he's just needs to give himself some time because he's just in a bit of a tricky situation. Um, but he's just rung me to say, Grandma, that course you put me through just saved my life. So the grandmother then said, I had to ring you to tell you this. So we get these calls, emails, all the time. That must be cool. Oh, that is so very cool. So cool. Yeah, so... Um, it's, that's why we do what we do. That's why um, we refuse to listen to the government. We refuse to listen to you know, some of the research done by the academics. And remember, you know, research, only, only, you only find what you're looking for. So research sometimes is a bit, bit hard. You've got to look at the whole big picture. So the government think the only research worth looking at is that done by academics. And we've done a lot of work in trying to make them understand that that's only one part of the research. So the other part of the research is listening to people like us who do this work on the ground, listening to those testimonials, reading our feedback um, and, and having a look at the data we've got from uh, surveying um, people that have been to Rowcraft five years ago and that sort of thing. And so we are winning. We're winning on making them understand that that's, that's good research as well. And you need to start taking this into account because the academics will be very careful to do the research to find the answers that the politicians need. And if they're, they're doing research that shows the politicians you need to spend you know, billions of dollars building rowcrafts all across Australia, they're going to go, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> You see, so can you give us some research where we can go back to the public and say, right, we've installed more speed cameras to help keep you safe so that they'll vote for us again. Really, that's how the system works. So, you know, I've been fairly vocal and in, in trying to change that. 
And what you have to remember when you're doing anything like this, you need to know when to push, 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 push. And then you need to know when to pull back and give them a little bit of time to absorb that. And now it's time to push again. Um, so that's why I've been at Rowcraft for 10 years and we've got that far. But we are winning. We're, we're making some small wins. Um, Rowcraft's reputation is fantastic now. Like people want us at meetings they want us at those round table talk to us tell us this the politicians are inviting us to these sort of things and what's really fantastic for us is we have amazing support from our mayor our state um, rep and our, our federal um, representative in, in government so um, yeah we're, we're good in Gympie on three levels of government but yeah, they're only sort of one voice, um, but we do have amazing support. It's terrific. You mentioned primary school kids, high school kids, even mature drivers. When's the best time to instill these driving techniques and <coughs> attitudes? Okay, so what we do is we get we like to get primary school kids there um, any stage in their primary school, and um, that's a bike, bus, and pedestrian safety course, but. Our educators are really clever and what they're, they're doing right at that young age uh, when they're riding around their push bikes on a purpose-built push bike facility um, is they're teaching them to get their eyes up and they're teaching them what to look for when and, and how to respond to those hazards and things and, and what they need to be aware of. So we're actually starting the teaching for driving way down when they're on the push bikes. So the best time to come to us then and there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, we could get people before they form any bad habits. And unfortunately, parents are teaching kids bad habits. That's not because they're bad parents. It's because they haven't had the education. So you don't know what you don't know. So the best thing is to do is to understand as a parent, they shouldn't just be listening to me. I need to send them to Rowcraft. So we say... A good time is when they've done sort of 50 hours of their 100 hours on the learners. So they could have already got some bad habits by then. We can still get them out of that. Um, or school groups, they can come as a pre-learner. Um, so that in a perfect world, they'll come in a school group as a pre-learner. So then they're not going to get the bad habits from mum and dad. Then they'll come again either after between 50 and 100 hours of their L's or very soon after they get their P's. Because the first three weeks of their P's is statistically the most dangerous time of their driving career. And that's because our licensing system is flawed. So basically the, the, the test, the, the driving school is sort of teaching them to pass the test. They've passed the test. It's like a big green tick, you're good to go, mate. Which is actually untrue. It's wrong because that statistically is the is the most dangerous time and that's because they haven't got those two sets of eyes anymore they're out independent and they're inexperienced so if we can get them very soon after their peas or just before they get their peas i'd say that's the best time is it better these days though we do do the 100 hours i remember back when i was learning to drive and starting to drive none of that was around Again, there's a couple of ways of looking at that. I, I remember when my, my two girls did the 100 hours, that the change in them between zero and 50 hours was, was immense. The change in them between 50 and 100 is probably nothing, really. 
So I guess the 100 hours where I personally think it's a good thing is it, it's more of a, um, a rite of passage. So you must go through this. So they're not just taking their license for granted. You have to work hard. You have to do the right thing to get your license. The other thing is it's just 50 more hours of two sets of eyes in the car. So it's less chance that they're because the L's is actually their safest time statistically. Oh, yeah. wow. Yes, because, and that is, it, it's really easy to see why, because there's just two sets of eyes um, looking for everything and, and looking for those hazards and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it's probably a good thing. Uh, if they were to ever extend it any further, I think that'd just be stupid. Um, and what we need to understand with extending it further is that might be fine for kids in the city where you just take the bus or the train to work. So if we think about apprentices, you know, working in Gympie and having to drive to work or drive to a building site or, you know, it's just, it's not going to work. So there are academics who say people shouldn't be getting their license till they're 25. Really? And it's just ridiculous. Hmm. It is absolutely ridiculous. So instead, let's have a look at what people need to, to do their work, to be a contributor to their country and then educate them to do that safely. Because as you say, it's all about education. It is all about education. What's the big thing, though, that you will teach some? What's the big single ticket, big ticket item that you hope every person that leaves a roadcraft course that they take away? Okay, so there's a few exercises which are absolutely mind-blowing. But I think the one single one for me is it, it's really, really sad that for most people, most drivers, the first time they ever get to test their reaction to an emergency braking situation is when their life depends on it. And they will get it very wrong. Good call. Because there's something called fixation. And it's in every human to fixate on the threat. It's a survival technique. So if you're walk, doing bushwalk and there's a snake, you need to look at the snake so that you know where the snake is and get away from it or whatever. Driving, that is exactly the wrong thing to do. If you look at the threat, which is the semi that's come on your side of the road, you will look at it and you will steer towards it. That's called fixation. So, um, and this is what kids do in an emergency driving situation, when, uh, sorry, emergency braking situation, they will fixate on the threat unless they're trained differently and have the opportunity to practice that. So here's the thing. So this is what driving schools can't do because you can't do this on road. So on private property, purpose-built driver training facility, every single person that comes to roadcraft, whether pre-licensed, learner licensed, provisional license or open license, every one of them will do emergency braking situations and test their reaction Okay, so you just fell to pieces. You've got that completely wrong. And then they're given the strategies on what they should have done. So that, to me, is a grave injustice that most times people test that is when the semi is coming towards them and they die. It's that simple. Because I heard the story about Peter Brock, one of the most famous race drivers in the country who was killed in the Targa Tasmania, hit a tree and that he... I think I heard through Roadcraft was fixated on the tree. Yep. So, and like we say, and that's why we say at Roadcraft, you're not sending your young driver to Roadcraft to be a better driver. 
Peter Brock was an outstanding driver, but he's still dead. That's not what we're trying to teach them. We're giving them the strategies they need to be safer, more aware and more attentive, which can save their life. From start to finish, what are they actually learning? You say the skid pan, the reaction, the braking, what else are they learning? So they're learning, um, they do uh, foundation techniques, first of all. So we're basically teaching them how to sit in the car, which people think is ridiculous until you learn why. Um, And uh, then we're teaching them, uh, so how to sit in the car, how to brace, left foot bracing, um, how they need to be holding their arms, so where their seat needs to be, all of these things we call these foundation techniques because it puts you in the best situation to drive safely before we even teach them anything else. So a lot of people, that's a profound change. Some people have never left foot braced. Some people have driven with straight arms with the seat laid back their whole life. They might come to us as a 45-year-old and go, oh, I can't change that. By the end of the course, they're happy to change that because they understand why. Um, so then we put them through, we'll do uh, slalom, which is, slalom is about, um, I guess, learning to trust your peripheral vision um, because we don't have much vision up. We've got good peripheral vision, but we tend to look at the front of the bonnet. So we, we need, the slalom is about getting people's eyes up, seeing more, seeing further ahead. Um, and we'll certainly do, uh, we'll do things like um, straight line braking, and then uh, break and evade, and we can also have optional wet skid pan, um, all those sorts of things. And it, we go on and on and on, and and we do this whole series of exercises. And remembering, I'm not a driver trainer, so, um, and then what it, what we do is it culminates in a town drive, and um, we do a commentary drive. So to me, the commentary drive is what cements all of the two day learning. And commentary drive is great because you can always refresh that anytime. You can do a commentary drive while you're driving. And what that involves is verbalizing everything um, that you're scanning, checking, seeing, doing, and it cements the learning. So as you're driving, you, you'll actually be voicing what's going through your head. So most people, are they too blasé when they drive? Yeah, and most people... Most people drive far too close. So we, we have an, a series of exercises that shows them. Um, so in this, in this emergency braking situation here where you were one second behind, we show them where your car will stop when this car in front of you brakes. So then we show them what happens now when you're three seconds behind and it turns into not even an emergency braking situation. Now it's just a brake. But it's frustrating, though. You leave that amount of time, the two, three seconds, four seconds, whatever, and someone will race into the gap. Yep, every time. What's the strategy to deal with that? Okay, so we, I've, I've heard one of our senior educators say this to a group of kids. Um, I loved it. This is how he put it. And he's a maths teacher. And so he said, so, you know, you always they do that, don't they? And it annoys you. So you've got your good three seconds. <laughs> and it comes in. So he said... So now you're only two seconds behind that car. So you've got to get back a second. And then you're three seconds behind, someone does it again. So you get back a second or two seconds or whatever. So it's annoying, isn't it? So then he says, now what if that happens 30 times on your trip from Gympie to Brisbane? 30 times. It's really annoying, isn't it? So said, let's think about that. So each time you've adjusted, you've lost a second. So how much time have you lost between Gympie and Brisbane? And one time 
30 seconds. That can't be right. Hang on. Like I'm a math teacher. One times 30. No, it's 30 seconds. So in that whole trip, you've lost 30 seconds to keep yourself safe. So he said, can you now see that people are, um, that they're risking their life to save a second? And when he puts it like that, you think, oh my God, why am I risking my life to save a second? It's just a second. 30 times that happens, it's just 30 seconds. So leave five minutes earlier. Keep yourself safe. What about with ambulance drivers, though, that have got a lot of extra pressure because they need to make a destination sometimes quicker than most? Of course, lights, sirens and that, and they've got to try and get somewhere. How is that incorporated? So... Basically, the, the training at the ambulance, a lot of that is um, around there is no point you dying on the way to that person who's having a heart attack because you're not going to be able to help him then. And then when you've got the person who's got a broken neck because they've just fallen down a cliff or something, is there any point you driving like a madman to get to the hospital or are we more considering the patient ride so a lot of what they teach the ambulance it's not about fast and furious it's actually the opposite (laughs) so if they do code one um too fast they fail so um they can't do code one fast and smooth so it's very much about safe um safe driving getting to your patients safely and then getting your patient to the hospital safely. So it's so it's quite different, I, I believe, to police driver training. So police driver training could, well, police driving could, I guess, be called offensive driving, whereas um, this is defensive driving. So yeah, it's 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 very much along the same um, thinking. What do ambulance drivers say once they've done the course and they've had their thinking changed? What's their general reaction to the roadcraft course? So, mates, I read all feedback. We give everyone a feedback form and I read every um, every feedback form that comes through roadcraft. So consistently it is, wow, I cannot believe what I've learnt. I cannot believe how relevant this is to my everyday driving so I will be also instilling these things in my normal everyday driving in my own car definitely this is going to um, make me a much safer ambulance driver um, and absolutely my family is coming here normally that's about what you get (laughs) you're passionate about it it must excite you to go to work each day it does so I've, uh, I cocked up 10 years at Roadcraft in June and I've actually said that um, I've never had long service leave before because I've always gotten bored. I've always left jobs because I've run out of challenges. And so with Roadcraft, um, I'm not bored and um, I don't think I'm ever going to get bored. Um, I love the work. I love the organisation. I love the people I work with. They're all terrific. Um, we all have that passion um, the board, the volunteer board are all terrific and really supportive. So, um, and, and my work is, is exciting and it just doesn't, it doesn't stop changing. So there's always something new to do or, um, you know, now thinking of expansion. That's what I was going to ask you was over the next five years, what are you hoping to achieve? So we're hoping to absolutely achieve, increase um, what we do with our adv- advocacy work. We want to be... I think we're winning. We're nearly there. We want to be um, the voice of reason in in preventing road trauma. We want to be labelled as the experts, not those academics. 
And we have worked with some amazing academics, but we've worked with some that have just got no bloody idea. <laughs> oh, just, it's so frustrating. So, um, yeah, we, we are, uh, we're finding those good academics and we're, we're reaching out more to the government. And, and Transport and Main Roads, they have really improved on um, how they listen to people out there now. They're, they're doing some really good work, which is really exciting. Um, and the other thing, so that's, we want to improve that area. Um, and the other thing is we want to look at expanding further south. So, uh, so reaching into that um, probably a bigger densely populated areas in, in North Brisbane and Southern Sunshine Coast and, um, and maybe uh, a, a bit higher socioeconomic who might have a bit more money just to throw at roadcraft courses. Um, we're already doing work in central Queensland, so now we want to go the opposite direction. So we'll, that's the next five years, and then after that, well, yeah, who knows? That's the plan so far. Will you be setting up bases in these areas or just courses um, and turning up? And how do you do it, though, when you don't have the purpose-built facility like there is here at the home base? So we don't do it. That's a simple answer. So in Benarrabee, uh, in central Queensland, um, they built a facility, the Benarrabee Driver Education um, Facility, which is another not-for-profit association. So they actually then reached out to us to help them with the course. Um, so to their credit, they realised that the facility isn't worth a cracker without the people and the curriculum, which I tell the board all the time. And we have a brand new facility here, by the way brand new, built by Transport and Main Roads because the highway went straight over top of our old one. So we have a, an amazing, a facility that's even better than what it was before here in Gimping, thanks to the Section D of the new highway. So what was new in the new facility that you've built? Because the, the one that you used to have was pretty special. It was, I know. So so the, well, we, we had one big skid pan and feeder road and then another smaller one. So we called them VDA1 and VDA2 being vehicle dynamics area because skid pan's a dirty word for the government. So we don't use that. It's posh. It's vehicle dynamics area. So VDA. <laughs> yeah, we're posher. So um, we had VDA1 and VDA2 and we could run two courses concurrently. So what we've come up with with Main Roads, who again have been fantastic, um, so their contractors have built us a new facility with one massive skid pan and then lots of feeder roads. So And Rowcraft is doing a co-contribution, like we're paying for some of it. And so now we'll be able to run three courses concurrently. And we've just had handover of that whole new thing. So it's been done in sections. So we've now got the whole, that, all we've got to do is put the lawn in the middle, I think, and we're all done. So we've been using it for a couple of weeks. Um, so what we plan to do at the Sunshine Coast, so we're looking at a few options. Um, maybe if we could get an, a lease of some government land like we do here in Gympie, that would be great. That's really hard to come by, but maybe some pipelines, some things in the pipeline there. Um, that would be good. And then maybe some RDA funding to um, fund 50% of the infrastructure and we have the money in the bank to do the other. Um, the other option is we can lease Lakeside. So actually run some courses out of that. So we're just, yeah, we're looking at a few different options. So if someone wants to find out about Roadcraft, and it sounds like everyone should be finding out about it. Thank you, yes. <laughs> How do they do it? Okay, so uh, roadcraft.org.au 
our website we've got some great videos and and lots and lots of information um but we are a bit loath to go down the um just look on the website you can certainly book a course on the website but we love to talk to people so we're old-fashioned like that um so if you love getting on a website and booking a course online do it (laughs) if you want to talk to us please pick up the phone um give us a call or call into the office do you get many people calling in just to check it out some people some people yep they'll come with their um you know young son or something and say okay i just wanted to come with my son have a talk about and we're always happy to do that always happy to um give that time um but most people ring and and certainly more people are booking online but sometimes they've got questions and i hate that i hate the way society is going that you're sorry you can only talk to a computer so if you've got a question ring us we're very happy to spend the time to talk to you about any you know any concerns you've got or you know because some young people also have some you know maybe have a slight disability they might have anxiety or something like that so we're very happy to talk to you about how we can help with that it's so exciting to see your passion for it and it must be a real pleasure to as you say 10 years getting up and going which not really work no, it's not at work, no. I love getting out of bed in the morning and um, going to work. And like I said, the people there, um, you know, they're all great people. Um, we all get along pretty well. It's, it, it's, it's a really nice place to work, yeah. And, um, and because I get to do lots of variety of things and, um, you know, even this sort of thing and um, some of the marketing things we do, sometimes I've got to be in front of the camera, as you know, and do a video, which is out of my comfort zone, but it's... You know, you've got to do it because it's for the good of good. If we can save a few more lives, um, yeah, I'll do it. Charlene Macon, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.